And the grace of our Lord Jesus is not hovering with our bodies. He's praying that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. Today we'll be concluding our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. In these six chapters, we've truly seen the heart of Paul, his gifted logic, godly passion, fatherly affection, and shepherd-like protection for God's gospel and his church are placed on display in ways that make the redeemed rejoice and that can set the captives free. In his impassioned and logical arguments in the first two chapters, Paul revealed the damning nature of false gospels and false teachers, as well as the horrifying reality that seeking to gain righteousness by law is to set aside the grace of God and to abandon Him altogether. He also articulately defended his apostolic authority, showing it came from God and was blessed by the other apostles. In just two short chapters, Paul's Divinely inspired words elicit conviction and demand both our trust and attention for all he says next. In chapter 3, we were met with one of Paul's significant questions, which he'd go on to answer over and over in the letter. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In opposition to the Judaizers, who were compelling believers to enter into law-keeping to gain favor with God and complete their initiation into His people, Paul explained that the church is grafted into God's people through the Abrahamic covenant, not through the Mosaic covenant. His clear explanations exposed the Judaizers didn't know the scriptures and that their demands were diametrically opposed to the gospel of justification by faith. Paul explained that the Mosaic covenant had been fulfilled in Christ and was always meant to be a temporary covenant for a specific people and for a specific time. He eloquently showed us that the purpose of the law was to work as a pedagogue that would lead us to Christ. But then when Christ came, his people were no longer under a pedagogue and had become full sons and heirs with him. In Galatians 4, he spent more time fleshing out what sonship in Christ means for believers, proclaiming that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law to receive sonship as adopted sons. Again, Paul pled with the Galatians to flee the elemental principles of the world, which sought to place them in bondage once again. And then, in the culmination of all these things, Paul used the metaphor of the bondwoman Hagar and the free woman Sarah. He compared Hagar to Mount Sinai, where the law had been given, and Sarah, the woman of promise, to the Jerusalem above, which represents the new covenant people of God. He then, in a startling manner, quoted scripture saying, "'Cast out the bondwoman and her son.'" Paul also made clear that it has always been those in bondage who've persecuted those who walk in freedom. In chapter 5, Paul began to call true believers to walk by the Spirit and cautioned them against using their freedom as opportunity to sin. He'd clearly proclaimed the nature of the gospel and the futility of seeking to perfect oneself by works. Now he would begin to encourage believers not only to flee works of the flesh and works of the law, but to faithfully pursue works done in the Spirit. In the first half of Galatians 6, Paul told the believers to love one another, bearing one another's burdens in a manner submitting to the law of the Spirit. He commanded us to keep an eye on our own hearts, 
and to carry our own loads as we walk together in and by the Spirit, sharing all good things with the one who teaches us God's scriptures. As we conclude this letter today, we'll see Paul essentially summarize what he wants the Galatians to understand. He'll provide evidence for his authority and the authenticity of his letter. He'll summarize the nature of the false teachers who boast in their flesh to avoid persecution, and he'll proclaim his joy in boasting in the cross of the Lord, despite the losses that come with his allegiance. Paul will again speak of the futility of legalism, the necessity of the new birth, and he'll offer his blessings on the people of God. We hope you've been able to join us for all of these amazing chapters, but if you haven't, we hope you'll go back and listen from the beginning. Now, if you haven't already, go grab your Bibles and your coffee and join us for this last discussion on Paul's letter to the Galatians. But before we get started, let me remind you that you can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can visit proclamationmagazine.com to find a wealth of resources for Adventists, former Adventists, and concerned Christians who want to know more about Seventh-day Adventism. While you're there, sign up to receive weekly emails containing new material each Friday. You can also find a place to donate to the ministry should you feel called to come alongside Lamb with your financial support. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and please leave a review wherever you listen. Okay, Colleen, I've got my question. I've got my coffee. (laughs) Good, we're set. I want to know what stood out to you the most walking through Galatians this time around. Interesting question, actually. You know, if I had to pick one thing, I think the thing I realized is how much Christianity in general has lost sight of the book of Galatians. Oh, that's interesting. It seems to me that legalism, and I say that word advisedly because, as I've said before, as an Adventist, I would have never admitted I was a legalist. I was sure I was not. I believed that any adherence I had to the fourth commandment or other commandments was not legalism because I wasn't doing it to try to earn favor with God or to be saved. I would have said that. I was doing it because I loved God and wanted to prove that I had chosen Jesus. It was all inside-out reasoning, but the fact is I see that in, in places more than just Adventism and the cults. I see Christians referring to the Ten Commandments as their reason for doing things. I see Christians saying, we need to teach the Ten Commandments and put them in our courtrooms. And I'm not saying that's a bad idea, because I do think that civil law does derive from the law we find in Scripture. There's no doubt about there's a connection there, because morality does flow from God. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, the way we are saved is not at all through the law, and the law is not at all the thing that defines our behavior as saved people. If we don't really pay attention to Galatians, we forget what it means to walk by the Spirit. And this has been my big aha. I don't think most Christians study Galatians. I think they're afraid to say the law is obsolete and the Holy Spirit is who guides us now. And yet that's all over the New Testament. (laughs) And Galatians is so clear. Okay, I'm on a soapbox. I'm a little early for a soapbox. (laughs) So, Nikki, what was the thing that stood out to you? Well, actually, there were a couple things. I think um, the first thing was one of our episodes, you had pointed out that the Greek behind one of the passages was just law not the law. And 
that combined with him talking about the elemental principles of the world being both the Mosaic Covenant and, and the Old Testament scriptures for the Jews, and then also some of the other paganism that was going on for Gentiles, I came to see that law doesn't just have to be Mosaic Covenant. It's really yeah. anything we do to try to earn favor with God is that legalism. So that was one of them. And then the other one was, I feel like the law of the spirit is gelling for me in a new way. Just how related that is to loving the church, loving the body of Christ. It's just new in a kind of deeper level. I agree. Understanding that we're part of the body of Christ was a concept that made sense to me, but oh my, it's real. I understood that and I love the body of Christ. And my love for the body of Christ doesn't feel new. Right. But seeing how much the law of the Spirit is connected to commands for how to love the body of Christ, obeying those commands by the Spirit in the power of the Spirit is constantly coming back to how you interact in the church. Yeah, it is. And I know it's not just in the church, but a lot of these discussions are in that context. And it's also made me more aware of how many congregations are not necessarily established around the finished work of Christ and the law of the Spirit. They really do bring in all kinds of other law, if you want to say it that way, other requirements, other things, other activities, other behaviors that become the focus of the group, almost as if you had a really great religious club that was committed to doing good things in the community. That's not what's described here. Yeah. So that's interesting. And even that kind of setup that you just described, even within that, you end up having a hierarchy because somebody's got the idea for how do we fulfill this command? We're going to do it this way. Now everyone get on board. And if you're not on board, you're not fulfilling this command. And you start judging each other by law. Oh, that is so interesting. Wow, Nikki, we've just summarized the problems with Christianity, haven't we? (laughs) (laughs) Hardly. Yeah, hardly. But I do find it really interesting that this was Paul's very first epistle. This is the first thing. And this is the oldest and first and most pervasive problem he finds in the church. That is adopting law to enhance your Christianity. He walks through other epistles that deal with Gnosticism and misbehavior of all kinds. But if you really look at it, it's all about flesh. Mm -hmm. And that's what the law is about. It's appealing to flesh. And isn't it fascinating? This is the first problem he found in the Gentile church and the Jewish church because the Judaizers were Jews. Still today, this is the pervasive problem among Christians It's the flesh. It's the appeal to manage your behavior with law without submitting your internal spirit to live in yielding and submission to the Spirit of God and His Word. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah, it's like what you said a couple weeks ago. If you have this road, one side of the ditch is going to be licentiousness, and the other side is going to be legalism, and the middle is the law of Christ. And it's the narrow way, and few there be that find it, Jesus said. It's just quite fascinating. Well, we've come to the end, and I find it interesting, the things that Paul says to the Galatians as he says his goodbye to them, as he wraps up the summary of the book. So, Nikki, would you mind reading for us Galatians six eleven to 18? Okay. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. 
Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Wow. Nikki, you were talking a bit earlier about your thoughts on verse 11, where he's talking about what a large hand he writes with, what large handwriting he has. Would you talk a little about that? He had mentioned in Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, that they had been with him during some kind of bodily illness. Mm -hmm. And he says that they would have taken out their own eyes if they could have to help him. And people have suggested that the large handwriting was related to him not seeing well. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm thinking about verse 11, and I'm thinking about the fact that this whole letter began with him trying to remind them of who he was and the authority he had from God and the unity he had in ministry with the other apostles, defending his apostleship, and then later appealing to the relationship that they once had where they trusted him. And now he's again going back to that in a way, if this is related to the bodily illness that he had, this particular church would have intimate knowledge of why this would validate the letter as being from Paul. This would appeal to something unique in them, as opposed to other churches who would have encountered this kind of handwriting and this validation. So that was interesting to me. And then also having it in the same context of him talking about the Judaizers wanting to boast in their flesh. And then he goes on and says that he bears in his flesh the brand marks of Christ. And that was suffering. And their whole reason for wanting to, to... perpetuate this Judaism and the circumcision and boasting in their flesh was to avoid persecution. Yeah. So it's all just really interesting the way that it appeals to their relationships. And then it also makes the point that Paul bears in his flesh, his authenticity as God's apostle. Interesting way to put it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Like you said, he goes on to talk about the contrast between himself and the Judaizers are by reminding them of what the Judaizers have been doing to them. And I think it's so interesting. I tell you, Nikki, the next couple of verses really made me think of Adventism and their methods. Because he says of the Judaizers, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And then he goes on to say, for those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. These Judaizers claim to be Christian. But here they are coming along and saying, no, no, you have to be circumcised, which means you have to come under the Jewish law. You have to keep the law. Well, why? They pulled on some sort of hierarchical rank. Jews were the original people of God. You know, we have a history. You're the newcomers. You didn't have the law. You didn't have the oracles of God. We did. So, you've got to listen to us. 
you may have the gospel now. Paul may have told you that, but we are going to give you the full gospel. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the Adventists do in other countries, especially. Paul Carden from the Centers for Apologetics Research has said, this is what happens in Africa. The Christians will present the gospel. They will be preaching. They will be evangelizing people. They will even be going door to door with gospel tracts and explaining the finished work of Jesus. And literally, just minutes behind them, the Adventists follow the Christians through town, knock on the door and say they have the rest of the gospel for them. And they bring them the Sabbath and they bring them the law. This is Judaizing in the most complete sense. Mm -hmm. The Adventists do what these Judaizers were doing to people who didn't know very much. They didn't know the scriptures. It's a little more sophisticated in North America and in parts of Europe, perhaps, but it's still the same thing. And what Paul is saying here is they are not doing this to set you free. They're doing this to compel you to be circumcised and keep the law. They want these Christians to come under the law like they are. And they kind of betray that they're not true believers because they're holding on to the law. So they're unbelievers coming along and saying they have the complete story for them now. And then what does it Adventists do next? They get these people to believe. They get these people to come to an Adventist meeting. They baptize them as Adventists. And then what do the Adventists do? They boast in their flesh. We have this many baptisms. We have this many people joining the church. It's published. It's told around the world. It's part of their online statistics and word of mouth statistics. It's not about people being saved. It's not about people trusting Jesus. And this is what Paul said the Judaizers were doing. Well, and the other thing I think that fits with your comparison of Adventism is the desire to make Christianity, and that's in air quotes, palatable. Great way to so put it. So they change things. They change their message. They soften it because they want to avoid persecution. The Adventists don't like being called a cult. No, they don't. Hence, questions on doctrine. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it reminds me of our tour through Loma Linda. Yeah. And in the children's chapel at an Adventist hospital, they had prayer rugs and an arrow pointing toward Mecca. Yes. And by the way, they have removed that arrow. Prayer rugs are not easily visible there now. I think almost that they've listened to what we've said. They're in a chest, right? Under they their were. under mm-hmm. their prayer table, mm-hmm. where you write out your prayers and you place it in a little cherub, right? Which <laughs> it's interesting because it's it seems so ecumenical. In fact, there was a published story a few years ago about Andrews University taking students from Andrews to a Muslim mosque and showing them praying with the Muslims. So yes, they have a love for ecumenism, Mm -hmm. a love for not looking unique and odd in a way that would be offensive. And in fact, I have read in the Adventist Review, I've read especially by Bill Johnson, who's written about his work with Muslims, he said he would rather be called an Adventist in an, in a Muslim environment than a Christian because Muslims actually endorse the Torah. They endorse the law. I am not saying we don't evangelize Muslims and we don't love Muslims like we love all people who need the Lord. That's not my point here. My point here is that Adventism, like these Judaizers in Galatia, love bringing things into Christianity 
that isn't part of Christianity and making it into a syncretistic religion that everybody will like. Now, you know, there's going to be people who will say, well, you guys are talking about liberal Adventism. But Ellen White and the early Adventists and the conservative Adventists today will tell you that the gospel is all about God is love. We serve a God of love. He would never send anybody to hell. That's That's not what he does. That's a lie from Rome. (laughs) And they would also say it's our job to show the watching universe, the watching planets, the watching world, that God is loving and that he's fair and that he's just. And we do this by keeping the commandments and serving people and, and medical ministry and on and on. Yes. So even that conservative arm of Adventism is doing the same thing. They are doing public relations for Adventism on behalf of God. They're making Christianity palatable. But look at what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. In chapter 15, verses 18 to 21, he said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. There it is. They do not know the father who sent Jesus to be our full atonement and propitiation for our sin and to break the curse of death. They don't know God. And that is in contrast to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 13 to 15. And I always think of Adventism when I read this passage. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And Nikki, that's what Adventists do. And you know, I want to say, it's not only Adventists. All of the Christian cults, so-called, do this sort of thing. And not only that, false Christianity does this sort of thing. It may not take the same kind of missionary look that the cults have well developed. Syncretistic Christianity that pulls in ideas from the new age, that pulls in the law, that pulls in spiritual disciplines, they actively teach and print and publish these syncretistic ideas to make Christianity palatable, to change the face of Christianity so that it's acceptable to the world. And then to boast. Boasting that they have received you in. Boasting that you have become part of them. Boasting that you have received the whole truth. See the people that are now keeping the Sabbath because we took the gospel to them. And that isn't even the gospel. So in 14, 
What does Paul say about what he boasts in? He says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is from Paul, who has made very clear that he was one untimely born. Yes. He knows his only reason for being alive in Christ is because Christ, as Ellen put it, knocked him off his donkey. (laughs) 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 He intervened. I love that. (laughs) He intervened in Paul's life in a powerful, sovereign way. He did. And Paul made clear in Ephesians that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Christ made us alive. Together with him. So Paul is very, very clear that the only thing he has to boast in is the cross of Christ. And his words here where he says that the world has been crucified to him, take me back to Philippians chapter 3. Yes. And I think this is a special verse for a lot of us who have lost so much, and yet we all count it gain knowing Christ. He says, beginning in verse 2, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is not a man trying to avoid persecution or trying to boast in the flesh of other people. No, not at all. I loved J. Vernon McGee's sentence about this verse. He said this, Between Paul and the world, there was a cross. (laughs) It shaped everything he saw. The shadow of the cross lay over all of reality for Paul. And I want that to be the way I see the world, (laughs) always through the cross of Christ. It's only that that gives me life, that makes it possible for you and me to sit here, Nikki, doing this podcast, Mm -hmm. talking about this book. This is the cross of Christ. This is not natural me. I understand when Paul says, may I never boast in anything except the cross of Christ, because anything else becomes um, looking at what I do in the flesh, looking at work. In fact, in Philippians 4.1, Paul even says this about the people who have come to faith. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul loved the body of Christ. He loved the people that came to faith because of his preaching of the gospel. There was no place in there for Paul to boast 
about his work, about his calling as an apostle. His life was hard. He suffered. As he says, he bears the marks of Christ in his body. His joy was that God gave him this work and that God is doing the work of bringing people to faith and that he is the instrument that God is using. It's all the work of God. And when we see the cross of Christ and its effect on us when we trust Jesus, it's like our former assistant pastor in the church we went to before once said, it's not that God comes down and enters your life story and changes it. It's that when you trust Jesus, he brings you up into his story. Your life becomes about Jesus. And that's all we can boast in. So then he says, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This isn't him undermining Israel or Gentiles. This is him making the point that what matters is whether or not we're born again. That new creation, that's that's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then Jesus in John chapter 3, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. There are many other passages that talk about the new birth and the necessity of the new birth in order to be counted among God's people and to be saved. And Paul is taking him right back to that. And that doesn't happen because of our will or our works or our ethnicity. John chapter one says he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You know, Paul is making a claim of exclusivity here. Mm -hmm. And thinking back to what we said a little earlier about the way so many parts of Christianity and the way the Christian cults, we know Adventism more intimately in that respect. But when we think to how they syncretize Christianity with things that are not part of Christianity, we realize that Paul is here condemning that practice. And he's saying, being a Jew and being circumcised does not make you any more eligible to be part of the body of Christ than being a Gentile and uncircumcised, or vice versa. He is saying that in Christ, there is something completely new. And I have loved listening to our Pastor Gary preach through Ephesians in these last several weeks. And he's making the point over and over again that when Jesus died and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit, he formed something completely new. It was the church. It's the people who, as you just read out of John 1, are born of God. And this is a new being created using that creation language from Genesis 1. God created a completely new set of people that had never existed on the earth prior to Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. When he sent the Holy Spirit and formed the church, that is a new group. It doesn't negate Israel and its purpose. It doesn't negate the Gentiles. But it says 
anybody from any people group, if you trust Jesus, you become something completely new. And that's what Paul is saying here. And I loved um, the metaphor, the example that J. Vernon McGee used about this. He said, think about somebody in marketing. And let's say that they have a new brand of soap, and I'm just going to assign some names. And so let's say they make an advertising slogan where they say, well, palm olive is good, but Dawn is better. Now you think about that slogan. They're not saying palm olive is nothing. And they're not saying it's not good. It's, it's still a viable soap. It's a viable detergent. But the advertiser is saying Dawn is better. Paul is essentially referring back to what these Judaizers are doing. And he's saying that's what they were doing. Yeah, Christianity's good, but it's even better if you add the law. It's even better if you add circumcision, because then you have not only the new birth, but you also have the law stamping you as God's people. No, Paul is saying that is fundamentally a lie. He's saying there's one new group of people. You enter that group of people only by trusting in Jesus, and God himself gives you the new birth. This is a claim of exclusivity. Mm -hmm. There's one way to belong to God's people. One. It's not a combination. It's not a syncretism. It's not pick and choose the best parts of these religions and put them together. There's one way, faith in Jesus. And that one way we're told is to carry our cross. Exactly. We're we're born of God. Christ did it all, but it is also a life of following him and carrying the cross of Christ with us into our life, not seeking to avoid persecution, but standing for truth and bearing the name of Christ in the world. It's all about truth, isn't it? It's all about truth, not truth as we define it in our heads, truth as God defines it to us in His eternal Word, as taught to us by the Holy Spirit as we submit to Him and recognize that He has done what we can't do. He has done everything to save us. Our job is to trust. I love Paul's next words here. After he has completely exposed the false teachers and admonished those who were being deceived by them, and made clear that it is only the new creation that matters. He says, And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And the word there, walk by this rule, it's a word I can't pronounce, but it's (laughs) Strong's number 4748. And I think it's stoikio. Mm -hmm. And it properly means to walk in line, in strict accordance to a particular pace or stride, to walk in cadence and keep in step. So the new creation is what matters. But then we walk in that. We live by that. And the Galatians weren't doing that. They had assented to it when Paul first came and gave them the gospel. But then they begin to walk in the way of the Judaizers. Paul is saying those who strictly keep in step with God's gospel... peace and mercy be upon them. And I love the word there for peace. It essentially means God's gift of wholeness. Oh, I love that. You know, and he ends this verse by saying, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And we just have to mention this because this is a much contested phrase. Some people say the Israel of God means everybody who believes Jesus, they're the new Israel. The church is the new Israel. Others say, no, this is talking about 
those of ethnic Judaism who trust Jesus alone. There's no consistent agreement among commentators about this. Some have very strong opinions one way, some another. But I want to say this, the way it's interpreted and upon the Israel of God, grammatically and contextually, Paul is not referring to the church here, to the entire church that includes the Jews and the Gentiles. As one commentator I listened to, S. Lewis Johnson said, Paul never uses the term Israel to refer to the church. And when you look at the context of the entire book of Galatians, his point, Paul's point, is the Judaizers are false teachers. The Judaizers are claiming to be Christians, but they're not. They're not trusting Jesus alone. They're bringing in the law. So, in the context of Galatians, I think we have to say this phrase has to mean the Israel of God, who are the Jews who trust Jesus alone, the true Israel of God. As Paul says in Romans 9, it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is verses 6 to 8. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Sound familiar? That was Galatians 4. (laughs) This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So, Paul has said in other places that just because people claim to be Jews doesn't mean that they're Jews of God at Mm -hmm. this point in the new covenant. They have to trust the Messiah of the Jews to be considered true Jews on this side of the cross. And in the context of Galatians, I believe that's what Paul is saying here. He's referring to all who walk by trust and faith in Jesus without relying on the law, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, the Jews who trust the Messiah of the Jews and trust him alone. Can you imagine how confusing the Judaizers must have been to those true Israel of God, those true believers who trusted the Messiah and who had been Jewish? You know, on a side note, For those who want to explore the conversation of whether or not the church replaced Israel, I'd recommend a book by Michael J. Vlach called Has the Church Replaced Israel? It's on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle as well. It's a great book explaining the history of how the church came to this position that they had replaced Israel. I agree. It's a great book. So then he says in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. It's almost like (laughs) a drop the mic moment. It's like, I am the apostle. It's Paul's final word on his authority to teach them and to be trusted. After making these comments about them boasting in the flesh, he makes the point that he bears in his flesh the brand marks, the holy scars that come with serving Christ. The Greek word there is stigma, and it refers literally to scars on Paul from the lictor's rod at Pisidian Antioch, the stoning at Lystra, and other stories we can read about in the book of Acts. These marks marked Paul as a slave of Jesus. He had the authority to correct these Judaizers, and really, the Galatians knew it. Yes, they did know. They had been with him from the beginning. 
as he suffered physically and taught them the gospel while they cared for him. My goodness, when you think about the tender past he had with the Galatians, how deeply it had to hurt Paul when he came back and found that they had been capitulating to the Judaizers, syncretizing the gospel with works of law. No, Jesus alone is our Savior. Jesus alone makes us alive, and He gives us His Spirit and teaches us to walk in the Spirit. So, Paul ends with a benediction. He ends with these words, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. (laughs) Thoughts, Nikki? Yes. I recently had a conversation with somebody who is was questioning Adventism and in passing, they made the comment, you know how people say, I'll be with you in spirit, but they're not really with them in spirit. They went on and as they fleshed out their point, it became very clear to me that they didn't understand that actually humans have spirits and that our spirits are united together in Christ and that that's a very real thing. The Greek word used here for spirit is Pneumatos, Strong's 4151, and it can only be defined three ways. Spirit, either capital S or lowercase, referring to humans or God, Mm -hmm. and then wind or breath. Those are the only three options, and context is what determines the definition. Yes. It is never defined as state of mind or attitude or positive thoughts. Right. The spirit of man is a real thing. It's the immaterial us that lives inside our mortal flesh, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 is either at home in the body or absent and with the Lord. Or he even says, we desire rather to be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. What is that that can be absent from the body and at home with the Lord? What is that? That's something real. And Adventists have denied that reality. And the denial of the human spirit is perhaps the most warping of all Adventist doctrine because it makes it almost impossible to understand any of the spiritual truths of our salvation except as a metaphor. What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean that? The unborn John leaped when he heard his unborn Savior enter the room in his mother Mary. What does this mean that we are at home in the body or absent and with the Lord? Something is there. This is not just a metaphor to make a point about our consciousness. Now, can I define any more clearly what that spirit is? No. But I can say, Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, God is spirit, as you just defined, Nikki. God is spirit, and true worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. That means we are spirit beings housed in bodies, and our spirit is what worships God. So, even though we can't fully define it, even though it's immaterial, Paul is here giving us in this final verse of Galatians, which has told us so much about our Adventist past and and corrected our thinking. He ends with the major correction of all. We are spirit beings. Created new in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. (laughs) If we believe. And the grace of our Lord Jesus is not hovering with our bodies. 
He's praying that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with our spirit. Amen. Amen. (laughs) So as we end this amazing book, Paul's very first book, if you have an Adventist background, or even if you don't, and you're hanging on to the feeling that there are certain works of law, either the ten or other laws, that you have to do in order to stay pleasing to God, I have an assignment for you. Get a notebook and begin reading slowly and copying verse by verse the book of Galatians into this notebook and ask the Lord to teach you what you need to know. And our prayer for you is that you will see who Jesus really is and who you really are, a depraved sinner who cannot recommend yourself to God and that you will trust Jesus, who has taken all of your sin, past, present, and future, in his body to the cross. He has died and paid the sufficient sacrifice, the sufficient propitiation for your sin. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to Scripture. And he broke the curse of death. That is the curse that hangs over each one of us when we are born, until we believe. I pray that you will know this, Jesus, and that you will come to know what it means to be born again and adopted by the Father and set free in Christ, to walk by the law of Christ, by the way of the Spirit. That's our prayer for you. If you have questions or comments for us, please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. And don't forget to visit proclamationmagazine.com to see the resources there for you. We hope you'll join us next week as we begin walking through our new series through the book of Daniel. (laughs) And we wanted to talk a little bit about why we decided to go through the book of Daniel. If you're feeling apoplectic and terrified, you're not alone. (laughs) I have a very good friend years ago who told me that when she left Adventism and went to a women's Bible study in her Christian church on the book of Daniel, she had to leave. She had to leave in the middle of the first lesson because she became physically ill. Mm -hmm. That is typical. And I just want to say, just as we were lied to about the Sabbath and the covenants, we were really lied to about the book of Daniel. Mm -hmm. It is nothing like we were taught. And because We've had so many questions over the last two years about eschatology and end times and what about Daniel and what about Daniel 7. And so we've decided we're just going to walk through Daniel together. We're going to look at the words. We're not going to try to interpret or say what things mean if it's not clear what they mean. We're just going to walk through and look at the words. And Nikki, isn't it amazing how much of Daniel actually reveals false teaching about Adventism. It really is. I I feel like we're taking back Daniel because you know what? The book of Daniel was written for the people of God. This is our book. This book doesn't belong to the cults. It doesn't belong to the eschatological cults. (laughs) This is God's book. And I love something Elizabeth has often said. She said, when I get to heaven and God says to me, what did you think about what did you, I'll just use Daniel as an example. What did you think about the book of Daniel? I don't want to say, oh, well, yeah, God, I didn't get to that one. (laughs) I don't want to avoid anything that he has written and meant for my eyes to see. That's right. Because somebody else took it and abused it. We're taking it back. We are taking it back. 
because it's no mistake that Adventism mistaught the book of Daniel. It is a book of amazing comfort and hope and excitement. Even if we don't understand what every single thing means, we don't have to. The Lord knows how to reveal things in His time. The book itself is rich. So please join us. And we'll see you then.